Hello and welcome to the Unheard podcast for a very special International Women's Day edition and I am joined by three fantastic guests. Um, unlike the last time we did an all-female, I'm glad to say everybody is fully clothed um, <laughs> so that, but it's our choice, my choice, it's all good. Um, so I'm joined by Charlotte Pickles who is the Unheard Capitalism Editor, Hannah Peeker, Chief of Staff at the Women's Equality Party and Rachel Johnson who appears on the Skies Pledge and is a columnist on the Mail on Sunday Welcome. Happy International Women's Day. Yeah. yeah. Everyone, I'm, I'm wearing pink just to be totally stereotypical. So I just want to start <laughs> off with that topic. What does International Women's Day mean to you? Do you care about it? Do you think it's all virtue signalling or do you think it is actually an important sort of day to celebrate feminism? Charlotte, actually, I'm going to start with you, Hannah, because I feel the Women's Equality Party, the clues in the title, you've probably got skin in the game. We have. It gets a bit crowded on International Women's Day, doesn't it? It's a bit... It's very busy. <laughs> it's very busy. Um, I I love it because I get to go and listen to people and learn new things instead of us having to be the only people putting out any kind of uh, <laughs> feminist messaging, battling with the press every day. I enjoy it. Um, I uh, enjoy being in a party where it's every day. Ah, very good. And do you, but do you think it is actually a big deal or do you feel like it's a bit too... Almost like commercial now i don't think it's commercial um i think it's i think it is a big deal i think it reconnects it it, it positions the women's movement as a global movement um and it uh it gives platforms that are so rarely given uh, to women uh to to make their political points to express their uh, experiences needs interests um and i think that's a really really important thing and whilst we live in a world kind of disfigured by inequality you have to purposefully and intentionally make those spaces Rachel, what does it mean to you, if anything? Well, I think that it it's a good reminder that um, there's, not in Britain really, although we still got a long way to go, but actually the fact that it's International Women's Day, I think, doesn't get enough attention. And I'd, I'd like to see a bit more focus, I think, on the real lack of rights and access to education and healthcare and work that... Um, prevalent in so many countries and I think that one of the problems we have is feminism has almost become a first world problem here but it's it's a really massive massive issue in the third world um, having said that I mean I, I think that I'd like to see the emphasis more on international and as well as on women um, I think that a lot of people are secretly quite weary I mean we all have a great time but you know talk to men and they go oh you know into happy international women's day with a sort of slight sigh but it just reminds me that the first piece I ever wrote was for my school magazine and it, I think the headline was why women still need a push and it I think it's important to remember that every single generation of women seems to have to fight these battles yeah. the battle is never over and I think that's why it is still important. I mean, I take your point about the, the internationalism, but also, it, first of all, it's a very busy day. And I think women like us have quite a nice time because it's a sort of whirlwind of events and panels, discussions and conferences. And, and th- I mean, I've been to Clarence House today, just Ooh. thought I'd drop that. <laughs> oh, have you done, done the Camilla thing? Yes. Oh, I wasn't invited this year. And if I wasn't invited last year, so we were like swapping our kind of... Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so it's, it is great, but I am also quite conscious that 
you know, it's quite a small pool of women who are having Mm. quite a nice time. You know, how inclusive is this? And it takes you into a bigger discussion about how inclusive is feminism and how inclusive it should be. Um, And of course it should be, and I think we would all want it to be. I think the point is people actually work really hard to make International Women's Day deeply inclusive. If you take the Women of the World Festival as a prominent example of an activity that takes place, I think it's one of the most intersectional feminist spaces that exists and the South Bank under Jude's leadership has worked extraordinarily hard to make that a space that everybody can access that reflects all kinds of conversations and experiences. So just for some of our listeners who might not, because we're making the assumption that Jude Kelly is the artistic director of the South Bank Mm. and the Women of the World Festival is a very, very big gathering of women to talk about women's issues. It's sort of, it's been going for quite a long time now and it is amazing. Mm. I mean, been very very successful um it's now i think featuring in like 53 different countries i think i'm we're all sort of doing stuff in it but again just to push back on it i love the women of the world festival it's been incredibly positive for me i debuted my stand-up show there like two years ago but i also know many women in london who have never heard of it and actually i think sorry it's charlotte and what, what's your kind of take on i think it's also beyond london so i think um I think it's great to have a day that uh, puts a spotlight on the fact that, particularly internationally, as Rachel was saying, if we think about countries where women are, you know, unbelievably subjugated and kind of suffering all sorts of abuse on a you know daily basis. Um, not that there aren't women suffering from that if you look at domestic violence stats and things like that in this country, but um, I, I do. So I think it's good that we can spotlight that, but I do think there is an element of it becoming much more corporate, much more kind of elite if that's a you know word I can use. I, I wonder, I mean I was talking to some of the guys in the office earlier today and, and I was saying I wonder how far, you know, the the woman waking up in Hull and going to her shift job is thinking, Oh great, it's International Women's Day. You know, I, I just I wonder whether we get caught up exactly as you're saying, um, in the kind of the sort of the, the gloss and the shine and the kind of events and we slightly forget that there are an awful lot of women with just, you know, awful daily grind. And the other point is that Sky, we were talking about today on the show, did a poll yesterday to tie in with Kay Burley's 100 Women events mm. around International Women's Day. And they said, how, what percentage of people think feminism has gone too far? And it was an incredible 64% of people polled. that's what we call a leading question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> or has gone far enough stroke too far. Yeah. Uh, as if you know, right? That's enough, girls. You know, you've got your you've got your eighteen percent pay gap across the board. Um, you've got your female prime minister, your female head of state, your female head of the SNP, your female head of police, your female head of fire brigade, your female home secretary. Right, that's your lot. Now you know it's back to us, chaps. You know, I actually had a male comedian say to me, "You lot are never happy, are you? I mean, what more do you want? You've got to reason me. You're exactly. just never happy." They point to the very few women who have risen to the top. Um, by sheer force of character and doggedness, like, or in, in, in uh, actually accident, if you look at Theresa May, and they say, you know, that proves, you know, your job is done, but your job is not done. Our job is not done, and I think that's what the point of this day is a bit. And it's it's so important to keep focusing on that because 
I mean, I'm a huge fan of International Women's Day. I remember back in sort of, and it's only actually quite a recent phenomenon. I remember when I was a, a young junior press officer at the Department of Trade and Industry back in 2002, 2003. We did something on it for the first time and people were like, what is this day? This is so weird. Like, why would you sort of celebrate this? And even as far as um, recently as 2010, when I was working for Harriet Harman, we resurrected the Women's Conference at the Labour Party, clue being in the title, Women's Conference. And loads of senior advisors, who all happen to be male, of course, said, OK, we'll let you have this Women's Conference, but you cannot, you cannot use the word feminism anywhere because that will just switch people off. So we have come a, f- a long way culturally in a kind of a, quite a short period of time. But sometimes all of this can, the sort of, festival around it can mask all those deeper issues like I did I've been doing loads of conferences loads of conferences in the city with lots of really well-intentioned big corporations really rolling the red carpet out for women um, saying you know everyone's going to get a goodie bag for International Women's Day with you know and we're going to have inspirational speakers and yet they've just published their gender pay gap and it's like 40% or something like that. Or you that. look at their board. I mean, I can remember when I worked for a global corporate and going to, you know, an International Women's Day um, full day event, you know, kind of, as you say, loads of great inspiring women speakers and thinking, yeah, but it'd be nice if any of the managing directors around me were women and it would be quite nice if actually, yeah. you know, there wasn't this kind of clubby sort of, because I was a consultant, kind of clubby, go out, have to go out drinking in the evening to do the networking type stuff. And I think it just, you know, I think there's a risk that that does mask the really important issues. And yet, I, I, I'm going to push back against that a little bit because you still see, you know, you've got a year's prep. It's one day, right? And you still see this kind of back of a fag packet announcements from the from the main political parties of, oh, oh my God, it's International Women's Day is coming. What on earth are we going to say? We need to say? And we had that moment when when Sophie was first announced as candidate for London Mayor. Uh, the Evening Standard had held back the information that she was going to be revealed on the night. So none of the other candidates knew she was going to be announced. Uh, and they kind of wheeled, Sarah Sands wheeled Sophie out and said, and tonight's surprise candidate. And you saw all the men just go, oh, God, we haven't, like, what looking at their advisors, like, I haven't got anything on the women. We haven't got anything on the women. I wasn't told the women were going to be here, you know. That <laughs> mo- and, you get, and it's so, it's like, I don't think we've overdone it in any way. Sure. And I also want to just, just quickly come back to the idea of this, because, you know, every day the Women's Equality Party puts out something and the immediate set of tweets uh, in response will say, uh, what about women in Iran? And, and this question of this, bu- this false bi- binary as though what's happening here is somehow disconnected from what's happening, the experiences of women in developing countries. They are deeply, intimately connected through uh, capital, uh, through power, through the relationships between developed and developing countries, through sale of arms, through the Crown Prince being here at the same time as announcing an equal pay audit. Like, failure to actually start to connect those experiences uh, is exactly where we are are not kind of taking advantage of the solidarity of this global movement and its potential and hope. Also, I sometimes think the the international thing is so, so important, but sometimes there is also a little bit of whataboutery as a sort of distraction. So you kind of say, so when Carrie Gracie came out with her yeah. thing, people were like, but what about all these other poor producers down the line, people who had never really ever expressed a view about low-paid women at the BBC or junior um, producers. So I, I definitely take that point. Um, so just to move the conversation on a little bit, um, one of the things that Unheard tries to do is 
not just focus on what the sort of mainstream media is doing and pick up on stories that we think are important but haven't really um, been given the, the coverage that, that, that we think we they, they sort of merit. So, um, Charlotte, I wonder if I could come to you first to sort of pick your underreported sort of story of the week. I feel I have to pick one on capitalism uh, as that's obviously my focus here at Unheard. And so um, at the moment, there is a bill on the floor of the Senate in America, um, which is a bipartisan bill, which is perhaps slightly surprising, which is looking to loosen or lessen, reduce um, the regulation on certain banks. So banks with assets of between, I think, in 25 billion and 250 billion, which is pretty big banks. And the Congressional Budget Office, which uh, analyzes a lot of the kind of data and information around uh, legislation, has said that this will increase the likelihood of a bank failing. Um, and therefore increase the likelihood of uh, the government, in this case the US government, having to bail out uh, that bank. And, you know, it just strikes me, we're not talking about that bill, perhaps because it's in America, but, you know, when America sneezes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we know what happened uh, in the last crash a decade ago. But it strikes me that whilst we're still talking about wages stagnating and, and we're talking about kind of other issues that are still the long shadow of the financial crash, we're not really talking about whether we've actually fixed our banking system and whether the, you know, the kind of structures, the regulation, the, the kind of models that we have in place are sufficient to prevent us repeating what happened um, a decade ago. And so I just feel we should be spending, you know, the news, the media should be spending more time talking about whether, you know, our economy is really any more stable. Yeah. I think that's such an important point and one of my um, great frustrations, particularly about where things are post-Brexit, well, there's so many frustrations where we are kind of, well, we haven't Brexited yet, but you, you, get, the, you, you get the sense is there's so many things that we haven't addressed, particularly post-crash. And when um, I was working for various politicians when the crash happened, I was you know, in the Labour government, everyone was writing speeches saying, never again can this happen. You know, we must all think about what kind of economy and what kind of society we want to have post-crash. And we've not done that at all. Like, no party has really given it enough attention. Which is so similar to the, uh, you know, a major trigger for Brexit being... Uh, a conversation that hadn't happened for so long around immigration and yet since mm. we've now committed to Brexit there's been barely anything on immigration as compared to uh, yep. trade you know every other aspect of, of this fallout uh, we're not regulatory a alignment right. knows what that is they think it's something to do with the osteopath like nobody really kind of um, um, and it's yeah it's a great you know I, I am it's one of those subjects when you know when you when you reveal something like that, it, that sends a shiver down my spine about where we could end up. And I think it's because it sounds very technical. And so, you know, we know that, that on the whole, the news likes quite exciting things, things which kind of seem perhaps a little bit more simple. And it seems very technical to say, oh, you know, are we lessening the regulation around big banks and, you know, with assets of X billion uh, dollars or pounds. But actually, Ultimately, if we look at what happened when the banks failed, it was about ordinary people. It was yeah. ordinary people losing homes and livelihoods. It was about unemployment. It was about you know people being pushed into debt, not being able to cope. And that's why we should care. But it does, seems to me that nobody's uh, addressed the problems of casino capitalism properly. And if you've tried to find get a loan or mortgage, you know how hard it is as a consumer as a retail consumer of the financial markets to get a loan. However, we know that the, you know, the international investment banks and all 
you know, it's monopoly money and the money that's swilling around at the top. It's an <coughs> inverted pyramid of piffle. Of, I would say of piffle, but, <laughs> but I shouldn't use that phrase. It's an inverted pyramid of something where, you know, the, the capital ratios are still probably not adequate to gu- guarantee the risks And on one end. And at the other end, you've got people who want to borrow £100,000 so they can't move, can't, because they can't move house because of stamp duty yeah. is so such a, you know, gouges at them that they can't move. Anyway, so we've got two things going on. And on International Women's Day, we ought to, uh, you know, look at this from a, from a feminist perspective and start to look at uh, our failure to deal with regulation properly is a symptom of uh, unfettered, unregulated capitalism, which benefits a tiny proportion of white men at the expense of the majority of uh, the world's women. Yeah, and there was a, actually, we should give credit to the Daily Telegraph, which is starting a campaign today yes. to mark the event, the fact that female entrepreneurs get 10% of the funding of, ma- of their male counterparts when they bid for cash to start wow. businesses. well, that is not a surprise at all. I all remember that great phrase, you know, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, Sisters we yeah. may not have been in this um, yeah. mess. Rachel, your underreported story of the week. Um, my underreported story is really fact that nobody we all know that the personal is political and then after me too we know the sexual is political but the also the marital is political and I want to talk about the fact that there's a very strong link between um, polygamy and instability and it's been reported that the economist has done a study on this um, and what is saying that one of the reasons the Arab Spring erupted was because the jihadists of Boko Haram and the Islamic states were all fighting because um, they, you know, the, the societies were so turbulent because there's an imbalance in the fact that you know one man can have four women uh, and it makes everything very the taking of multiple wives I'm going to read this out because it's better than I can say it, is a feature of life in in all of the 20 most unstable countries on the fragile states index compiled by the fund for peace uh so you know it just makes you think that actually we can never get away from gender relations it caused the arab arab spring yeah. a breakdown in gender relations this is why it's so important to keep it in the spotlight and keep talking about it and it's so easily it is so easily forgotten but that is a that's a fascinating yeah. and which countries i mean is this sort of is this taking place in like a number of um is this sort of statistic relevant to sort of a number of different countries well i mean more than a third of women in west africa are married to a man who has more than one wife plural marriages are plentiful in the arab world and common in also in southeast asia and a few parts of the caribbean wow well that's I mean, that's, that's an amazing statistic. So my underreported story actually links to Rachel's, um, particularly with the theme of putting the international back into International Women's Day. So CNN, which actually does get a fair amount of stick for just only talking about Trump the entire time <laughs> and being your, your go-to station for impeachment porn, as, as <laughs> Stephen Colbert brilliantly said in one of his late-night shows. And I know Tim Montgomery, our editor, is often very chiding of CNN. But fair play to them. It is an incredible report where an undercover um, reporter took the journey... Um, from Nigeria, which there is so much um, migration where people are trying to come to Europe to get a better life. Now, you may well disagree with why they want to do that, but it is happening. And the people traffickers 
of course, promise the world and say, you know, if you give us this money, we'll get you to um, Italy, no problem. She posed as a kind of reasonably sort of wealthy woman. She organised a deal for £1,400 to get her safe passage from Nigeria to Libya and then from Libya on a boat to Italy. Of course, she was never going to get on that boat because what they do is when they get the people to Libya, the men get enslaved and sold as slaves in auctions and the women get put into prostitution. And she was on the VIP package and as part of... Now, when I think of VIP package, I'm thinking of a lavender eye mask and some Jo Malone hand cream or something like that. She was basically told, we're giving you um, these condoms, we call them Kiss Kiss, and this is because we care about you, you're a moneyed woman, and you are basically going to get raped now on your journey. What? And when you are raped, don't struggle, because that will it will be more painful for you if you struggle. So here Jesus. are condoms to protect yourself. Don't struggle if you're raped, and a nice girl like you will get attacked a lot, raped a lot, um, but that will help you because you might get on the boat faster. So when you hear something like that, it really puts things in perspective. And again, sex used as a weapon against women, you know, all over the world, in the developing world. I mean, the depressing thing about this story about Nigeria, Nigeria is actually one of the most developed economies in, in Africa. Um, and of course, sex as a weapon against women gets used in affluent parts of the world, as we know. Um, so that was my underreported. And there are, you know, very sadly, plenty of examples of trafficking um, in the UK, where, where people are trafficked to the UK, and, and as you described, men being, you know, we've, we've heard some limited news stories about those men who have, have been forced to do manual labour and, you know, form of modern slavery, um, but also the women. I remember reading something about how um, nail bars were a particular place where, you know, a lot of trafficked women were ending up, and it, it's just horrendous, and yet you know we get these odd kind of stories that come out and we all go oh my gosh this is terrible and and you know just awful and yet we then go on with our lives oh, and you know we, we we don't hear about it for an awful long time well i mean i'm i'm so very proud of the women's equality party for uh being the only party to take a position of the nordic model which is uh, uh the model under which you would uh penalize uh you would criminalize the buyers of sex um, and not uh, uh, the prostitutes, um, and I, because because what that seeks to do is to actually end demand, and it and it accepts the state, uh, the the global uh, sex trafficking trade, uh, the worst form of unfettered capitalism, uh, and and aspires to say we can end demand, and only if we start to penalise those who think it is acceptable to buy uh, sex. Uh, and we, we have to look at the scale of that trade uh, as it exists um, and and start to tackle it head on. I think that's the thing that just shocked me so much about this report. The scale was just unbelievable. And they had this amazing footage um, in this slave auction in Libya. And it was like a scene from a kind of film. You know, it was just like, I cannot believe this is actually happening in this day and age. And the thing that is so tragic about it is because these are essentially, some are fleeing from war and conflict and violence. But some are economic migrants. They they do want to get to, to Europe for a better life. They've left their families at home. And there's a very sad complicity with it because they will go along with it because they have not got the money and because their families are back home, 
the traffickers are like well we're going to do your family and if you don't comply with what we do so there is this kind of it's this just kind of horrific trade in, but this in goes, human misery. This goes back to that wanting to have that conversation uh, around Brexit, around immigration. Because what does it mean if we are now moving to a point system? Any point system that you can construct, uh, however you do it, re- will rely on you having some form of asset threshold or income threshold to meet the mark of uh, qualifying as the type of immigrant we want. Uh, and that will create a kind of bulge, which is the... definitely the wrong word uh, of men, of of isolated male immigrants who are able to meet that threshold whilst women are uh, left behind and those women will be forced to take much greater risks and will be vulnerable to new levels of exploitation as they try and make uh, a journey to our country as well as those men being isolated away from their communities and vulnerable uh, to the grooming uh, around terrorism I, I mean going back to your story and uh, you know is is one of correlation but it's, it reminded me of uh, the fact that you know, we, we fair, very rarely talk about the links between terrorism uh, and domestic violence. The fact that that violence is so often first practiced mm. on women at home before uh, those men evolve and escalate into other forms of, of terror. Um, and if we are able to start to tackle this kind of stuff, um, it will really get at the heart of the, the, the really big stuff. But it means having a socially just immigration system. Well, also it means us having a conversation about immigration, which this nobody right now on any side, any party actually seems to want to do. But Hannah, your um, underreported story of the week. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit different in tone, but something that warrants, you know, <laughs> and it, this may mean why it hasn't got as much coverage, but uh, we are all a good friend of Alexa, uh, the the Amazon uh, friend. Not uh, Chung. Not Chung. Just checking. Also Chung. I mean, very good <laughs> friends with her. Probably, I'm seeing her later. Um, uh, Alexa has, uh, you know, gone through this feminist journey and we've seen her evolution. She started off as a suppressed uh, uh, woman who, when, it, you know, insulted by her owners, she was uh, forced to apologise or accept their criticism. Uh, and then Amazon escalated her into a new response of just dismissal of, you know, something, I can't believe what you're saying or I'm not listening to you anymore. Till uh, this week... She's really gone to the next level and is now just laughing in the face uh, of, of the patriarchy. Uh, so a bug has infiltrated Alexa and she's now going around laughing at her owners. And I think laughing because the alternative is crying as a feminist woman uh, struggling in a deeply patriarchal world. I love the idea. I love the fact there's probably like one female scientist that thought, right, I'm going to have my revenge. I'm yeah. going to put this bug in Alexa. Absolutely. Someone's having a, a great laugh. laugh. Every time somebody, a male, barks orders at us, <laughs> Alexa, you know, yeah. buy a hundred things on Amazon or whatever it is. Why don't you yeah. do it? <laughs> can't yeah. you multitask? Alexa, where's the butter? And I can't believe this wasn't prominent in PMQs. You know, this it really It was on the Today programme. Oh, well, and they kept saying it. And every, I, w- I had this vision of Alexa's all over the country <laughs> erupting every time somebody said Alexa laugh and they were going ha 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 in that very creepy way I love the idea of Alexa kind of like getting really sassy and sort of pushing yeah. back now in terms of especially um, in the face of like AI which yeah. and the algorithms that are built yeah, towards I- ideas of masculinity you know she's just defying the odds and sex robots, a legend yeah. which are oh, all by the way bought by men yeah. oh the sex are robots are enemy. Her- yeah. oh my goodness so horrific yeah, maybe that's what she's laughing at. Well, the whole. Do you know there was? I read this horrendous thing about how you probably all read it. It was like they trialed a sex robot, a female sex robot, 
and, and all the men wanted to have sex with her. Do you not only, only did they want to have sex with her, she got destroyed. Like she actually yeah, like got that. literally broken. How entire oh, and how so horrible depressing. is that? How how kind of scary and horrible is that? And then going back to using rape as a weapon of war. Well, this has been how very cheery. So we're just going to um, we're just nearing the end of this very interesting podcast, and I'm going to ask you, actually going to ask you to pick your hero and villain of the week. So I'm going to start with my hero, which was Francis McDermott at the Oscars, winning brilliantly and very well-deserved M3 billboards. Um, She was completely fantastic, but I loved the idea of her saying, look, we can't just have like a Me Too campaign and a Time's Up campaign, we've got to get change. And she introduced this idea of you know, people and stars using their power, a bit of leverage, and you know, they get riders for you know what they want inclusion in their trailers. Riders. Inclusion riders. And I thought what what an interesting yeah. idea because actually I mean, I'm not saying you have to make everything prescriptive because there are some stories which if you're gonna tell them authentically, you're not gonna have fifty fifty or, you know, a completely sort of representative thing. But there's loads you can do behind the scenes in terms of your cast and you know, the the crew members and stuff. So I thought that was a really good sort of practical suggestion because again with the times up and all the, the Hollywood stuff, you know, there's lots of let's all talk around the edges, but no one actually talks about sort of doing the structural things. So I thought that was a brilliant suggestion. Uh, Who's your... We'll do heroes first. Who's your hero of the week, Charlotte? So my hero is the Iranian woman who uh, this year was... Uh, sorry, this week was sentenced to two years in prison for publicly removing her veil. Um, And this is part of um, the kind of very peaceful, very silent um, protest that a number of women are involved in or have been involved in in Iran, um, where it is compulsory to be veiled. And And I just think the strength to know what the repercussions could be and yet to take that stand is phenomenal. Hannah. My hero is Sophie Walker, who uh, just today uh, has been re-elected with more than 90% of the vote as the leader of the Women's Equality Party. Um, She is my hero because uh, she stood up at the first meeting of the Women's Equality Party and offered to put the chairs out, uh, and in the last three years has blossomed into one of the most dedicated, uh, compassionate politicians uh, I've ever seen. And... uh, I, I just think it's an absolute kind of celebration of where the party's out at and where we're we're heading, and uh, she will continue to be my hero for exactly the five-year term. Does she still? <laughs> does she still put the chairs out? Absolutely, we insist. That's, that's she did it at her announcement today. Yeah. God, she got. I think she got about the same. She got more of the share of the vote than Jeremy Corbyn did. Yes, she <laughs> like did. that kind yes, of level did. of, of uh, sort of support in her yeah, party. Yeah, our party's still together. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel. As we're running out of time, I thought maybe I should do villain and hero in the same person. How about Mohammed bin Salman, Ah. who's the Saudi crown prince who's over here meeting Theresa May and meeting Her Majesty and others. Um, You know, he's, on the one hand, he's chucked a number of his close friends and family and locked them up in a hotel and been very autocratic in Saudi Arabia. On the other, he does appear to have some genuine commitment to reform in a country that has not been, as it were, a shining star when it comes to (laughs) women's rights um, 
and um, human rights, which are women's rights. So I, he is my combined hero and villain. He's a very good combined um, hero and villain. I also think he's been like a one-man fiscal stimulus for the advertising <laughs> industry. <laughs> in yes, the, those, I know, I saw them on the A40 as yeah. I drove in yesterday. They were like unbelievable. And the Times, I picked up the Times yeah, newspaper this morning. And it was, I mean, there must have been, yeah, four separate ads, including what I found a slightly odd one which was yeah, a kind of blur of, of the Union Jack and, and the Saudi flag arm sales are very profitable yeah well who knew you can even afford a wraparound on I the, mean uh, who knew yeah. who knew well look I'm going to take the chair's prerogative to um, make a collective decision about what the villain is of the <gasps> week and because it is International Women's Day I'm going to say the patriarchy yay <laughs> the man can, the man not all men but the bad men you know who you are stop tweeting me you know who you are um, so I just want to say thank you so much to all of our guests it's been a fantastically interesting podcast do join us again again uh, next week. Thanks for listening.